Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to Chabura. I guess we must do an introduction for many of the new guests that we've got here today. Uh, the Chabura is a virtual and physical Bet Midrash uh, dedicated to striving to know God through embracing the world through the lens of Torah. Um, our approach is very much rooted in the classical Sefaradi Masora, and uh, we're very glad for you that you're able to join us here tonight on the second half, for the second half of a uh, special Sunday series that we've had going on just last week and this week uh, to commemorate the one year anniversary since the inception of the Chabura. Uh, quick housekeeping that we do uh, at the beginning of every session. Uh, we have a couple of weeks left for everybody to sign up to membership mode. It begins 5th of July with a unique curriculum covering Mikra, Halakha, Talmud, Machshaba and history. We have many teachers. Please do go and check out the website. Uh, as I mentioned before, we were about 150 people signed up. Uh, we're now at uh, just over 160. So it's been very, very uh, you know, humbling to see how many people are interested in learning and joining the journey that the Chabura is on. The next edition of our quarterly journal will be released in the coming weeks, and it features essays by selected Talmidim and Talmidot on Shurim that we've given over the last year or so. Uh, our publishing house, it's finalizing the first set of books that we plan to publish in the next 12 to 18 months, which will be a mixture of uh, content, including chapters written by our students, selected students and selected teachers, as well as translating and republishing some of the works of uh, our hachamim uh, throughout the ages that are not as well known. Uh, we've also noticed that we've got quite a few subscribers or quite a few viewers on YouTube with hundreds of hours being watched, um, but there's still about 30% of people who are watching that aren't subscribed to us on YouTube yet. So if you do watch on YouTube, please do subscribe so you're kept up to date with all of our content. Uh, so here we are, the second half of our special Sunday series on Ba'alea Tosafot and Hachme Sefarad. Last week, we had a fantastic shiur by Rafaim Rappaport, which explored the approach of Ba'alea Tosafot uh, in a shiur that has since garnered many views on our YouTube page and a lot of discussion in the groups. This week, we have another very special guest, this time to explore the approach of the other school of thought, how Talmud was studied in Sefarad, this being the predominant school of thought at the time, constituting over 70% of world Jewry. And our guest tonight uh, is none other than Rabbi Aharon Haleva, who is a personal student of Hacham Jose Faul, alava shalom, with whom he studied Talmud in the tradition of Od Sefarad for over four decades. Hakam uh, practices patents and trademark law at a Philadelphia-based law firm. And we have, we at the Chabura have uh, learned a lot of uh, uh, ideas and we had, we've gained a lot of wisdom from Rabbi Haleva's voice notes and his texts um, and, and some of the recorded shurim. And we're very, very excited to be able to host him here live, which will hopefully be one of many, many occasions. Um, Rabbi Haleva, it's great to have you. If you would like to unmute, and then I can make you the spotlight. Just one moment.
apologies, just a moment. Just going to pause the recording. So Ravi's joining now. Okay, so sorry there about that. Go. No problem. Uh, I just did. I just such a fantastic intro, Rav. You missed it. Oh, it was it was good. phenomenal. But uh, I'll play you the recording afterwards. Okay, uh, I didn't hear it because the computer uh, had to reload the uh, WhatsApp web. There we go. No problem. We're very glad to have you, and uh, I will give leave the stage with you. Bahabod. Okay, so I need to share screen here. Let me find my files. How do I get to the desktop? No. You know, any idea how do I get to the desktop from this window? Desktop, if you just uh, close, you can close this window that you're on now where it's got the Zoom okay. web page. Yeah. Just close okay. that and then you should take you to the desktop. Okay. Let's see. Which meaning Zoom. Okay. There we go. And here we are. And here we are. Okay, here we go. So can everybody see this? Yep. Okay, good. Excellent. Okay. So hello everybody. And take your time, Rav, just to let you know, take your time. Okay, no problem. No rush. So hello everybody in Habura land. And I'm Aaron Halewa. And I'm sure Sin has told you more about me than you want to know. So I heard last week's uh, very elegant and, and Rabbi Rappaport is very articulate and uh, conceptually very strong. And I really enjoyed hearing what he had to say. And I just wanna tell you, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Andalusian or the Geonic Andalusian uh, tradition and how we studied Talmud. And then contrast that somewhat to the Tosafot. But I wanna tell you something about the Tosafot. Uh, I admire them. They did the very best they could with the resources they had and the social limitations of the people they were trying to lead. So sometimes rabbis or hahamim want to take a community in a certain direction, but you just can't, you can't stand behind the train and push. It doesn't make it go any farther. So there were uh, social considerations in the Carolingian Empire, which became the Holy Roman Empire. That's where the communities in France and Germany were. There were certain movements among the general populace that you just could not avoid. And so a lot of what the Tosafot tried to do was make the Talmud as relevant as they possibly could to Jews living in that society. And so that's the story of the Tosafot. They did the very best they could. And the question for us is, do we need to emulate everything they did? 
or now that we have other resources, perhaps we should avail ourselves of those just as I'm sure the major Ba'ale HaTosafot would have were they alive today in our context and freed of some of the limits that the medieval, early medieval society put on you. So I'm gonna tell you about Talmud. Talmud is the third level of study. So in the Sephardic tradition, there are three levels of study called Mikra. The second is Halakha slash Mishnah. And the third is Talmud. Before we read Harambam here as to what uh, Talmud is. So we usually did these in sequence, just like in the Mishnah in Avot, then Hamesh Lam Mikra, and you studied the Mikra for five years. What does that mean? They taught you how to recite the entire Arba'ah Ve'asim, uh, that means 24. So in the Sephardic world, we did not say the word Tanakh ever. We said Mikra, and the Muslims, of course, borrowed from us Quran, same exact word, same exact Shoresh. Or we would sometimes say the Arba'a Ve'asim, if you were in the Ladino or Judeo-Spanish speaking community, you would call it Los 24, which means the 24. But we, we, every child had kind of a pretty good mental map of the entire Mikra and how to sing it. And then of course, they would train you how to translate using the very same Ta'amim they taught you for the Hebrew into either Arabic, that's called the Sharah, or into Judeo-Spanish, that's called Ladinar. That's a verb to render into Ladino. So I remember even the old men in the, the Turkish synagogue I grew up in in Seattle in the 1960s and early 70s, they could still um, look at the Mikra, uh, let's say in Mishle, just the Hebrew, and they could sing it and they could generate in real time the Ladino translation of each pasuk. So that's first level. Second level is Mishnah and Halakha. Uh, we usually studied the Mishneh Torah. Some people studied the Mishnayot plus Mishneh Torah. Some people studied uh, Shulchan Aruch. Some people studied the Hilchot Harif. Harambam's book, when he, the Mishneh Torah, when he writes in the Hakdama that all you need to do to read this book is know the Mikra, and you could read this book and you know the entire Torah Shebe Alpeh, a statement which many people are critical of. They don't really quite understand that Hanabam's statement is in the context of the Sephardic educational system. And he's speaking to people at level two. He's not speaking to people at level three. He's not telling you you're going to be gamir v'savir v'chol ha-Torah kullah by reading the Mishneh Torah. But if you are at the level of Mishnah Halakha, this book is all you need to know the entire corpus of halakha at that level. If you want to know how those conclusions, those laws as of the close, we call the Hatima, the Talmud Babli, are arrived at, that's a different story. And that requires studying Talmud. And of course, in his Teshuvot, he cites too many sugyot. So this notion, which is somewhat of a truism that Harambam was trying to displace the Talmud, that's false. He was trying to give the people at level two a comprehensive and copious treatment of the entire Torah Shabbat on that level. The third level, of course, is Talmud. And that is, uh, look up here, this is the Mishneh Torah in Talmud Torah, uh, chapter one, Lacha Yodimal. Of course, I'm using the um, Kafeh edition from Machon Mishnat HaTalmud, Yosef Kafeh, the Yemenite. So his girsa, I think, is uh, 
pure, solid nikia, as we would say, and but he has different divisions for the halachot than the Vilna. So this is this is the Vilna number, and the square brackets are the Yemenite number. So So every individual uh, has to divide their the time of their studying of Torah into thirds. Shalish bat Torah shebichtav a third in the Mikra. Vishalish bat Torah shebealpeh a third in the Mishnayot. Vishalish and the Talmud if you're on that level, which was rare by the way, rare. Maybe fifteen percent of the population was ever taught Talmud, but those who were taught it ended up mastering it. Vishalish yabin biaskil ahari davar mereshito. So this is interesting language that I think many people just bypass quickly. But this is kind of the key to what we know, and you may have heard it from me or from Haham Faur, Muflaim. So the third level requires you to understand Aharit Davar Mereshito. So suppose there's a final form of a misfah. The Kiryat Shema, the way we have it, and the Berachot, which are secondary obligations, and the way we have those. How did we get there? Was that always the case? Was Kiryat Shema always known to be that way? You all know, of course, the answer is no. From the Haggadah Shel Pesach, the Kiryat Shema Shel Arvi did not have Perashat Sisit at one time. Right? So until Ben Zoma made his famous derasha and thereby persuaded all the other hahamim and the Bedin to vote for it, you, did, you only had two perashot of, of the Shema Shel Arvin. Okay? So to understand a misvah, <coughs> you take the point in time where the Tamud Babli ended and you go back in time <coughs> in order to understand how it began. Why do you need to do that? If you're ever going to have a new Sanhedrin that is going to further uh, amend, grow, expand, adapt the Torah Shebe'a Al-Peh, the forms of the Misvot, you have to know where they started, where they ended in the days of Rabbi Naverab Asheh, who authored the Talmud Babli, and where they could go from there. So you have to understand the past trajectory to see where the future trajectory might be. That's why this is so important. And you have to compare one thing to the other. Sometimes there was a development in the area of, let's say, oh, I don't know, tefillah. And there wasn't a, a parallel development in the area of mm, bikurim, what you recite, the vidud bikurim, because the temple didn't exist. And we just kind of left the vidud bikurim where it was. If we have a new temple, would you say a different vidud bikurim? Maybe. So you compare one thing to the other to see at what state of development they are or whether they have consistent values or not. And you have to apply the midot, uh, the 13 midot, as they were applied by the, the rabbinic, the rabbis in the rabbinic period. You have to know what the intellectual underpinning of these midot are. And how those midot are used to determine what is asur, what is mutar, 
etc. Of course, every din mufla, as you may know, addresses a context that was not in front of Moses. So there is no official answer. You have to vote on it, right? That's why the Sifre says, Afilo omrim al yamin necha shehu semol, semol shehu yamin. Even if the Shema Allahim, if the Beddin votes on something and they tell you what you think is right is left, and what you think is left is right, you still have to listen to them because they're, they're, they're generating the law right then in real time. And this time axis, understanding that's called Talmud. Talmud is a strange word in Hebrew. This kind of noun is rare. Uh, it means critical and intense study. Uh, there are, most nouns do not have a taf in the beginning. Some do, like tashlum, tagmulohi uh, in the tehillim, etc. They're a, a rare form. Okay, let's see. Whoops. Uh, I just want to point out quickly what else is in Talmud. Here from Hilchod Yisodeh HaTorah, he says, and the content of these first four chapters, he's speaking in the fourth chapter of Yisodeh HaTorah now, that tell you how to practice the five misvot that are dealt with in Yisodeh HaTorah, namely to accept God's sovereignty, Ahavat uh, Hashem, things like that. That's what the original hahamim called pardes. Like the famous Mishnah that opens the second chapter uh, of Hagiga, or it's close to the beginning. And even though those four were the some of the most developed men of Israel and some of the greatest hachamim. Not all of them had the ability to know or to have their mind fully reach all of those things that we've described above until the point that they're totally clear. So as you know, of the four that entered the pardes, three failed. One died, one went crazy, one uh, gave up uh, on the fundamentals of the Torah, that would be Elisha Aher, and only one succeeded. But that study is part of the third level of study that we are all required to engage in, uh, if we can get there, and that's called Talmud. Now, how do we study? So, in the West, people think that study, like going to university, involves reading books, thinking about what's in the book, answering questions about the book, hopefully being able to re-articulate the book in your own words. Everything is done visually and mentally. Jewish tradition is the opposite. Everything starts with the ear. You first uh, recite, even if you don't know the, the meaning of what you're reciting. So I'm going to read you something from the end of Masechet Merilah, in the current printings, it's the last chapter called Bene Ha'ir. The actual place of this, it's the, it was the third chapter in all the manuscripts. I don't know why it flipped. And the text here is a little different than what you're going to find in the end of Masechet Merilah, chapter four, the printed version. 
So I want to show you the manuscript version, and it starts here. This uh, final sugya in uh, chapter Bene Ha'ir ends with five Agadic statements of a Palestinian rabbi named Rabbi Shefatya. And he was a student of Rabbi Yohanan. So he translate, transmits five Imrot B'Shem Rabbi Yohanan. This is the, the fourth out of five. And here it starts here. Amar Bishafatya, Amar Biyohanan. So I start right here at the end of the first line. Amar, you see that? Amar Bishafatya, Amar Biyohanan. Hakore belo ne'ima, vehashone belo zemira. Ala vekatub omer, vehamani nathati lahem hokim lo torim, umishpaltim lo yehubahen. This is a derasha on a pasuk in Yehezkel. The pasuk is not talking about this subject whatsoever. It's a pure derasha. He's using that pasuk in Yehezkel to express an, his own idea. That pasuk in Yehezkel is basically saying, if you don't like my misvot, says God, uh, and you feel, you feel that God gave us bad laws. just It's a waste of time. It doesn't help. It's not worth doing. Uh, so then, th that's the part that's not quoted. Then God says that if that's the way you feel, you don't like the Torah, you don't like the misvot, okay, fine. You go live amongst uh, the other nations in exile, and you see what's going to happen to you. I will place upon you the yoke of hokim, which are really negative, and hok is ritual law, mishpat is civil law. And mishpatim, uh, that you just simply can't live on. And that often was the case. So that's the derasha. That's, that's the peshat. The, the derasha is if you do not recite with a tune both the mikra and the Torah Alpeh, it will not stay with you. So let me read it again. Amar bi shafatya, amar bi ohanan, akore belo ne'ima, vehashone belo zemira. Whoever recites without a tune, uh, this is a, a cognate of, in Hebrew, the word noah means ecstasy, but this is a cognate uh, of the Arabic word nagme. Has anybody ever heard nagme? It means tune. So hakore ne'ima. This is uh, Arabic influenced or proto-Arabic influenced rabbinity. Ve'ashone. So shkore is the verb you use to recite the mikra. Shone is the verb you use to recite Torah Shebe'alpeh, like Mishnayot and Talmud. And you recite Torah Shebe'alpeh with no zemer, with no tune. On such a person, the Pasuk says, The Hulk and the Mishpat, which are the content of the Torah Shebe'alpeh, you're trying to you're trying to study, it won't stay with you. It will just simply not live in you. So uh, I'm just turned 60. And so I was a teenager in the 1960s and early 70s. And I can tell you, and I don't know the, tune, the, the popular music that you're familiar with, but if you start to play a song, the intro of any song that I thought was a hit, let's say in 1974, 1975, I could finish the line for you. How could I finish the line without even hearing the, the words? Because in your mind, you remember with music much more than you remember just words. 
So we had a certain kind of auditory erudition, I'll call it, is that when the ear hears something, it can finish the pasu, it can finish the Mishnah, because in your mind, it's stored as a tune. It's stored as a song, almost. It's not stored as uh, just words. It's not like a, a set of philosophical doctrines uh, that you have to remember and you have to make effort to remember. If you recite things with a tune, it's easy. So we also, besides the oral recitation aspect, uh, we, we also are, pay very careful attention to two things, the structure and the technical terminology. So I have here the structures for the Talmud, but Mishnayot have simple structures, but they have them. Usually organized in two babo, two clauses, or three babo, and sometimes one baba will have subclauses like that. In the Talmud, it's much more uh, elaborate. And it's, we study something called surata dishma'ateta. That means the form, or we would say the structure, of the shema'ata, means the or formulated oral traditions. There's a sugya peshuta, a single sugya, means it has only one part, a <clears throat> sugya kifula, sugya which has two parts. Usually the second part reflects on the first, but is different than the first. And we have a sugya mishuleshet, three parts, which is the most common. A theme is developed in part A. A related but not identical kind of diversion is developed in part B and part C weaves the two together. Almost like some of the uh, fugues of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, if you know music, he, he uses this kind of technique. There's an opening in one, there's a change to part two, and then part three is yet another change, but at the same time it, it reflects or echoes part one and, and pulls everything together. You may have heard the term Sheb Shema Teta. That's the structure used for Agadot or a structure used for Agadot. It's not used in legal sugyot, but there are Agada is presented in usually odd number of Shemuot. Like I was telling you about Masech and Megillah, this one, this is out of five, and the Sheb Shemateta is out of seven. Second aspect of how we study, technical terminology is key. And this relates to the Kelaleha Talmud, which are the rules of Talmud. For example, I hope you know, but you may not know. There's a difference in a sugya if something, a statement is introduced as Amarava, or Amaravaye, or Amaravapa, or the name comes first and the verb second. Rava Amar, Rabapa Amar, Avaye Amar, XYZ. Or, and I'll tell you what that is, Amarava is you're introducing something new, or you're agreeing with what was presented immediately before. Rava Amar is you're disagreeing with what was presented before. Metiv versus Makiv. You've heard of the term Metivi, Metivi. You may have heard it as Metve or Mesve in Ashkenazi Yeshiva. So Metiv means to question from a superior source. You could question a Mishnah from a Pasuk. You could question a Baraita from a Mishnah. You could question a lesser authoritative baraita from a more authoritative baraita. And how do I know who's lesser and who's more authoritative? There are the way a baraita is introduced, like Tanura Banan is most authoritative, Tanya, number two, Tana, three, like Tana Debe Eliyahu, and then Tane is least of, of the four. Those are authoritative sources. A question based on just Sebara, legal analysis, that's called matkif, matkif laha rabena, 
means Rabbeinah has no source. He just has a question based on what you just said or what the point or the source that was immediately prior. So to study Talmud really requires face-to-face -face transmission because of this oral or auditory aspect. And also a good teacher knows from the facial expressions of the students who's, you know, whether the lights are on or the lights are fuzzy or whether the lights are off. And you've, you've all seen that. Those of you who've taught people, you, you can tell immediately the, the tune engages uh, students. The, the tune we use for the sugyot is elaborate. It can, it has soft, like, you know, quiet parts, it has loud parts, it has emphatic parts, it has interrogative parts. And if you haven't studied Talmud that way, you've never heard it, it's a whole different world. It's like the difference between reading Shakespeare in a book, in a play, or going to the Royal Shakespeare Company and watching somebody actually perform Richard III. That opening speech, you just can't do that if you read the book and you, you see the words in your head. You, you just, you can't do it. Uh, Kevin, or his name, Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh was very good at that, uh, trained in the Royal Shakespeare Company. So Sefaradim, we also have an oral tradition for Talmud using the Arabic word Talqin. The Muslim, that means teaching. The Muslims also have the word talqin. It's a strange use. I don't know if they borrowed it from us or just natural development of the, of the Arabic language the way they saw it. That's what you do when, when somebody dies. A, I don't know the name, I don't know the name for the equivalent of a rabbi or a haham, but he goes to the grave of the deceased and he teaches him some things. And I think they believe you need to have a certain basic knowledge to enter Olam Habba. So even if you didn't study when you were alive, they teach you when you're dead. So that's called Talqin, uh, strange fact. But we, for us, it means the oral tradition for how to study Talmud. So the Talmud Babli is a very highly edited legal text. Each sugya was voted on by the national Beddin, and it was created during a 60-year period at the Kalot of Rab Asher. Each, uh, each Masechet was passed on twice. So you may have heard at the end of 30 years, but so here's how the kalod worked. They did a kalah, means everybody took off a month. Kalah means bride. So it means, yeah, when we say kalod, the full term is actually yarhe kalah. You may have heard of that. That means the months of the kalah. It's the equivalent to our English term honeymoon. So you take off work in a honeymoon and you're the right? So we did the same thing with the Torah twice a year. Now, I don't know how they pulled this off in their society, but, but they did, and they did it for centuries. Uh, every Adar and every Elul, they took off, nobody worked, and they attended uh, classes in the uh, academies of, you know, Sura and Pumbedita or Nehardea originally in Sura. And there was a member of the, of the academy of Yeshiva whose job it was to organize the Kalla. He's called Rosh, Resh Kalla. And he had assistants, by the way. And they put on classes at different levels for different people. And many, many people would come and attend. And I think the reason they did it, first of all, and they realized that what you hear in a huge assembly you remember much more than what you hear just even in the yeshiva. So they wanted to create this all of the nation of Israel all at once. I also think that they felt the gap, the psychological gap of not having 
the temple where you, you go there three times a year. So they wanted to have a virtual kind of, or an imitation or a, a kind of pseudo temple experience where everybody from all over the, the different parts of the Jewish nation where they lived, the, the different inhabitants, they showed up in these yeshivot twice a year and they spent a month there and they were, classes were put on. One of the things that was put on was like in the main arena, let's say, was the members of the yeshiva would discuss uh, the various sugyot in a masechet and over the course of that month, they would complete a, a whole entire masechet. Now the audience couldn't talk, but they could watch. And if they wanted to ask a question, they could write it on a little, it's called pitka, like a petek, like a, a shard of parchment. They would write it and they would throw it and the members who were sitting up on the stage, the, the members of the yeshiva, let's, the rabbani, you know, who had the semicha, they could pick it up. And if they thought it was a relevant question, they would articulate it to the, you know, the assembly. That's called nafal pitka. If you ever come across that in sugya, if somebody says nafal pitka, that means one of the hachamim picked up one of those pitkot that a member of the audience threw up on the stage and he decided it was a question worth raising with, with the entire Congress, let's call it that. So every, every 30 years, they finished the entire Talmud. That's why you have something called Mahadora Kama, first edition, Mahadora Batra, second edition. Now, while it and its source material were, were always written, formulations were presented and discussed orally in the yeshiva. So you had to know the sugyot by heart before, and certainly the Mishnayot and the Tosefta before you walked into the yeshiva. I'm not talking just about the kalad, but the everyday yeshiva, let's say in Bumbedita. So that's where people got the notion perhaps, or the mistaken notion that the uh, Talmud was not written. Of course it was written. There's no way to manage 2000 folios by pure memory. And even if you had few exceptional men with great memories, how do they pass it to anybody? Uh, according to the Talmudic law, minhag is a legal, legal category not a folkloric one. Law always trumps minhag, no matter what. So if you have a law that says, um, you don't say a beracha when you perform a minhag, you can. So if you want to say the halel for, for yom ha'asma'ut, which wonderful, you just can't say a beracha because hechan sivanu. There is no law on the books that directs us to recite halel except on 18 days or 21 in the Dalut. The Franco-German school had a liberal attitude toward the text of the Talmud. This school felt free to amend, interpolate, and delete from the text. Now, you may have seen many times the commentary of Rashi says, he, and then, you know, quote lines, gima, which stands for hachi Sinan. Rashi felt that the text in front of him was erroneous, so he felt free to correct it. If you look at the text now, though, almost 99% of the time when Rashi says Hachi Garcinan ABC, what you see in the printed text is ABC. So the printers took Rashi's notes and changed the text of the Talmud to reflect his notes. So what you're getting now in the standard published Talmud is Talmud as processed by Rashi. The Tosaf will do that too. Uh, this so why are they so liberal about it? Because they had the position that the Talmudic text was not put into writing until post-Talmudic times, late in the Middle Ages. Accordingly, the Talmudic text was never really fixed 
and there was no authoritative transmission of the text. It was much more fluid. It was like a working document that uh, co-authors may trade with each other. And that's why the ubiquitous Hachidar Sinan. And I would just want to show you, this is, is Misia'ah 33a. And uh, the there's a statement in the, in, in the Talmud itself that says, Tanu Rabbana, that means an authorized Baraita, by the way. Those who busy themselves with just mikra, it's a measure, means it has value, but it's also a non-measure, which is a way of saying it's valuable, but it's not so valuable because it's missing certain, certain things. You can't really process the, the mikra to generate halakha. You need the Torah Shabbat if you study Mishnah, that is a measure, and you receive reward for it. If you study Talmud, though, there's no, no measurement better than that. So it's even better than Mishnah. Here's Rashi. I already explained above. Shehu that the function of the Talmud is to give expression so that people can understand the hidden um, meanings or reasons of the Mishnah. Like why the Mishnah say X? The Mishnah is terse. The sugyot are a pirush on the Mishnah. They develop who's the author of the Mishnah. Is there a variant barata that disagrees with it? Do we agree with it? Etc. Mahem, uh, what they are. And if two Mishnayot appear to con contradict each other, you'll understand how to resolve the contradiction. Uh, let's see where, maybe I read the wrong thing. Aha, here it is, sorry. So he said, uh, studying Mishnah is a Midah, but it's, no, let's see. Oh, why is Mikra, now I got it. Why is Mikra Midah, Ve'en Midah? Because Mishnah and Tamur are better than Mikra. Oh, because it's, it's dependent upon an oral text. That's what it means by Girsa. And it was, it could easily be forgotten. Because in their days, means of the Hachamim, the rabbis, there was no written Gemara. And moreover, it was forbidden to write it. But because we had no choice, because the later generations, and he means maybe a hundred years before himself, in the 900s or so, um, they realized people are not going to be able to remember all this corpus. They started to write it. That's, none of that is true, by the way. None of it is true. The Talmud was always written. I have literally hundreds of proofs from the Talmud itself that the Shemuot were written. Um, they just, you, when you went to the yeshiva, you had to have memorized it before you walked in the door. You know, it's like, uh, so I'm a lawyer, I went to law school. Everything you have to study contracts is written. But when you walk into the test, you can't bring anything written. So. You have to answer the exams from memory. And that was like the yeshiva. You had to know it so clearly that you had it all organized in your mind. Okay, so that's, that's where the Franco-German notion about Talmud comes from.
And now I want to show you, now we're going to talk a little bit about the Tosafot in the remaining time. <clears throat> so, like I said before, they did their very, very best. And who knows if any of us today could have done as well as they did, given their resources and the limitations upon them. But, but, I'm not going to lie to you, the Talmudic tradition of the yeshivot of the Geonim, which is how it got disseminated to the rest of the Jewish people. Uh, from the Emoraim, it was, the Talmud was Nehtam around the year out of 487, passed to the Seboraim, who added some editing, passed to the Geonim, and they alone knew how to explain parts of it. Parts of it are difficult. They alone knew how to do that. And they had this oral tradition. And they passed it to their students, some of whom ended up in the West. But the people who were successful in organizing Yeshivot were all in the East, in Egypt, in Kairawan, North Africa, Tunisia, and in Cordoba. To my knowledge, there was no Yeshiva uh, from a student of the Geonim set up in Northern Europe. So some of the things you could only know orally, or if you could read Arabic, you might have an Arabic manuscript that would tell you about those things. You could simply couldn't know if you lived north of Muslim Spain. So there's a first sugya in Kitubot, which is somewhat instructive. The first sugya is about Bitulan Nisa'it Liyom Harbi'i, the Almana Liyom Hamishim. A virgin girl is to be married on Wednesdays and a widow on Thursdays. And the Mishnah says, why is that? Because uh, there was a tekana, I think, of Ezra, I'm not sure. There was a tekana, though, that the Bedin in rural areas had to at least sit on market day. And that was Monday and Thursday. So if you married a virgin and you wanted to challenge her virginity, you had to go to court. There's a special cause of action. Um, if you're false, it's called Mosi Shemra. You may have heard of that. Now, here's an Imra. This is Yeshivat Pumbadita because of Rabbi Yosef. Amar Rabbi Yosef, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shemuel, Mepenema Ameru Betulan Nisset Liyom Harbi'i. Why did the Mishnah say that a bitula is married on Wednesday? Remember, it does say so. It says because if you had a, a, wanted to sue the family for false virginity, you could go to court on Mondays or Thursdays. So you had to be married one day before, so you had the data you needed right, to make your claim. But this imra goes in a different direction. So here's an Imra, an Emoraitic tradition dating from Shemuel. Shemuel was a haham in Yeshivat Nehar De'a. The Yeshivat Nehar De'a was destroyed. And it was reestablished uh, in the days of Rabbi Yehuda, the end of the days of Rabbi Yehuda, in a place called Pumbedita. So there are always two schools or two yeshivot in Babel. Originally, it was Nehar De'a and Sura, Shemuel in Nehar De'a, Rab in Sura. After Nehar De'a was destroyed, it was Sura and Pumbedita. And who was in Pumbedita? Rabba and Rabbi Yosef, Abaye, Rabba, Rab Papa, and uh, 
people like that. When the Talmud was Nahtam, though, they moved back to Sura, and Rab Asheh and Rabena operated out of Sura. So the Mishnah says why you a virgin is married on Wednesday. This Imra seems to contradict it. It says, so there's a separate rule for if you're marrying a Kohen, they would be engaged and the, the girl would have about a year to prepare all of her dresses and her toiletries and everything she's gonna to bring to the new house as a young married woman that took about a year to prepare. And then after, after a year, the husband would come and Tobea Ota, he would uh, solicit her to come and live in his house. That's where they had the Nisuin. There is a Tikana that if the year passed and the husband did not initiate the Nisuin, she had the right to eat Tiruma. So if the time came and they didn't get married, and he's actually in the initiator of that, they have the, the husband, nonetheless, even though she's not living there, has the obligation to support her. And if he's a Kohen, she may eat Tiruma, even though she's not in Nisua. So what happened if the one year ended on Sunday? And he didn't marry her. Does he have to support her? Does she have the right to eat tirumah? Therefore, the Mishnah says to, to answer that problem. No, she gets married on Wednesday because the law requires the bitulah to be married on Wednesday. If the year anniversary ends on Sunday, she doesn't eat uh, from his pocket or his, his house or his shulchan until Wednesday. Rabbi Yosef says, good Lord, you're explaining a Mishnah, which is the Tanya, with a non-Mishnah. And then this is a Saboritic comment. What do you mean one is a Mishnah and one's a non-Mishnah? They're both formulated traditions. Uh, you're explaining a Mishnah which already gives you its reason with another formulation that doesn't explain its reason. That's absurd. So we're going to re, we're going to edit or recast the Shimua transmitted by Rabbi Yosef. Now, what does the text say? Because Rabbi Yosef was critical of his own Imra, the Tosafot believed that you had to, in the reformulated uh, Imra, you had to cut off the name of Rabbi Yosef. And that's what it says here. So this is the Setam voice, which means the general voice of the Sugya. Usually comments made at the Kala. So the Sugya says, if we're going to accept this Itmar of Rabbi Yosef in the name of Shemuel, we have to reformulate it or we, because we cannot accept it as transmitted by Rabbi Yosef. So therefore, it should say, Amar Rabbi Yosef, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shemuel, and we're going to reformulate it. I won't go into the reformulation, but it addresses that problem that he said good Lord about. The Tosafot say, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shemuel, Vila Garcina Rabbi Yosef, Dehar Rabbi Yosef Gufeh Ka'amar, Itmar. You don't, so the text in front of the Tosafot said the words Amar Rabbi Yosef because we are re 
recasting or re-editing in Yeshivat Pumbedita, the Imra that Rabbi Yosef is transmitting to us. He didn't write it. He just received it. He received it from Rabbi Huda, who received it from Shemuel. He is faithfully reporting what he received. So even you can transmit something and say, I received this from my teachers, but boy, I don't understand one word of it. What's going on? So he's first speaking as a chain in the tradition. He's next speaking as Rosh Hashiva of Pumpedita and saying, as Rosh Hashiva, I am charged with vetting every tradition that comes into the yeshiva. In the process of vetting, I see a problem. I don't think we can accept this as, as I received it. So they reformulate it so that it makes sense. Of course, in all the Girsa'ot, they all say, That's the Munich manuscript, which you can get in the Bavaria. It's on various websites. You can see it. It's in the, the, the there's collections of, of Talmudic manuscripts uh, uh, maintained by the Jewish National Library, which is the Hebrew U. You could also go to the Bavarian the National Library, and you can, they have this nice interface. You can see the entire uh, Munich manuscript. So that's what says that. There's another one. I don't know what this means, but it's from the Geniza. I think, so it's either from, I think Columbia University Libraries. They have a Geniza collection that came out of that. This is the designator of that particular manuscript. So, you remember that Tosafot said, drop the word of Yosef. Is his emendation true to the original Talmudic text? I don't think so. And I just showed you two manuscripts which predate uh, the French uh, schools and they have uh, Amar of Yosef in it. And why is that? Well, I think I just told you, but the tradition stands and he was faithfully repeating it. Now he has to analyze it in his job as Rosh Hashiva. He has the power to do that. And he's not going to lie in faith and change it before he transmits it, even if he sees a problem. So he transmits it to the Yeshiva and then the Yeshiva decides it. By the way, he never said, the Tosavot say, Rabbi Yosef never said that. That's the Yeshiva. That's the voice of the Kala probably 200 years later. In, in Yeshivat Pumbedita, they just reiterated it. Or if maybe the voice was said then and there, but it wasn't the personal opinion of Rabbi Yosef. If he had said it, it would say, Amar Rabbi Yosef, itmar, itmar. How do I know that? And how does the Tosafot not know it? Simple, not because I'm smarter, because we have a, a benefit of an oral tradition that was passed through in my case, Damascus, and then to Southern Spain, from before that, from Southern Spain, before that, from the Geonic Yeshivot. If you have the information, you have it. If you don't have the information, you are forced to speculate. That's what, I, that, to speculate. So I kind of made this little speech at the beginning. So in the interest of time, I'll skip. So faithful transmission of a halacha or an imra is not about understanding its sense. An oral law is never purely conceptual. It also has formal aspects like the rhyme of it, the phrasing of it, right? Uh, and how it sounds. And you must repeat the halakha exactly as you received it, even if that means mispronounce. So here's a Mishnah in Aiduyot. You know, Hillel and Shammai were the students of two converts named Shema'ya and Abtalion. They were converts 
they were, I think, from northern Syria. They didn't speak Hebrew uh, as their first language. And so when they did speak Hebrew, some of their Aramaisms, northern, like Syriac type Aramaic, uh, still crept into their speech. So if you want to say, this is a halakha about the mikveh, and as you know, it requires 40 sa'ah of, of um, properly drawn water, which means it cannot be drawn from a well with a bucket. That's called she'ubin, it makes it pasul. It must be rainwater or collected from rainwater or a living spring or an ocean, etc. This Mishnah discusses what happens if you mix into a mikveh a certain amount of forbidden water, of unfit water called ma'im she'ubin. Like you go to your well, you take a bucket, you fill it up and you dump it in the mikveh. Does that posel the mikveh? In some cases, yes. So, Hillel Omer, So Hillel used to recite on this law, that's Aramaic. In Hebrew, you say or actually. You would say When they heard it, they morphed it or maybe they formulated it. So they said it as an Aramaic speaker would say, So Hillel repeated the bad pronunciation. Why? And that's what Harambam tells you. If you want to know the whole story, read this. This is from the Pirush HaMishnah of Harambam, otherwise known as Kitab Isiraj, which means the book of the lantern. If one day when I have more time, I'll tell you why he calls it that. So we see that uh, in rabbinic uh, formulated material, you always repeat something exactly and precisely as you received it, even if you know it, it's mistaken. So uh, the Tosafot up here kind of considered the halakha or the suga more conceptual. So they apply reason to it. So it must be if something's wrong, Rabbi Yosef is the one who's complaining and that kind of can get you into trouble. But, but if you don't, live the recitative culture of Geonic Talmud, you just, you just won't know that. And there's a very similar statement called Hu Tanela Vehu Amarla. And I won't go into it now in the interest of time, but in Masechet um, Besa, uh, there's a discussion of, of certain Gezerot, of things you cannot do on Yom Tov. And uh, one of them is if, uh, if you set a trap and a, uh, an animal or a bird or a fish is caught in the trap, even if you set the trap from before Yom Tov, you can't take those animals unless you're certain that they weren't hunted on Yom Tov. And so then there's a question, what if someone, if a, if a goy gives you uh, a hunted animal and you're not sure whether it was hunted on Yom Tov or not? So, Rab Amar Mutarin, Mekabel, Belevi Amar Mutarin Ba'achila. Rab says you can, it's permitted to take it but not eat it. And Levi, who is a, a, a Emora in, in um, Nehar De'a, he and Shimuel's father were Dayanin in Nehar De'a. He says Mutarin Ba'achila. So now here's an interesting statement. Amar Rab. Now Rab said the following. You should never 
skip class at the Bet Midrash even for one hour. Why? Levi and myself. So both of them were members of the Betin of Rabbeinu HaKadosh and they studied with him in Eris Israel in Tiberias. Uh, both I and Levi were in front of Rabbi. When he said this, this, this Imra, this Imra. He's, here's the Mishnah says, so there was a Gentile who brought fish to Rabban Gamliel on Yom Tov. Rabban Gamliel said they're permitted. So the sugya says, mutarin right, And this, this is how you really say this sugya in, in uh, Talmudic recitation. Mutarin Just like that. You can't be shy to belt it out. You know, pretend you're a Shakespearean actor. So, mutarin lemai, rab amar mutarin lekabel. Levi amar mutarin bachila. Mahloket emoraim. We don't know what the word mutarin in this Mishnah means. Amar So, Rab says, le'olam alim na'adam asmum ben bet hamidrash. Afilu sha'aha. You should not skip class at the bet midrash even for one hour. Why? I'll show you why. Both myself and Levi were in front of uh, Rabbi. Rabbi was the teacher. When he transmitted this Mishnah. In the, in the evening, the day before, he said, It means you may eat it. And when the word the Mishnah says, mutarin, That means you may eat it. But the next morning he said, you, it's mutar to receive it from the Gentile, but you cannot eat it. I, who was in the Midrash the next morning, I changed the way I interpreted or I understood this Mishnah. This Levi who skipped the morning but was at the prior evening session, he didn't know about the change, so he never changed it. That's why this mahloket is, is the way it is, and of course that means the mahloket is decided according to that. Okay, now approach of the Baaleha Tosafot. The Tosafot took the text of the Talmud and adapted it to the peculiar social circumstances of Franco Germany, and sometimes it was just impossible to live the law as stated in the Talmud. And I'll get to one or two examples. So I'll skip most of this, but the way they, one of the rhetorical devices they used is to exploit this concept called davka and lavdavka. Davka means a law is specific to a certain context. And lavdavka means it's not specific to its context, it's a general rule. So when they needed to, they would flip the meanings of those, or they would apply lav davka to a text that was davka, and they would apply davka to a text that was lav davka. And that's the only way you could harmonize their prior practice, which they had no control to change. The, the, the people in Franco Germany uh, believed that the highest and most authoritative source for religious acts is ancestral custom. The Goyim believed that, and the Jews believed that. And it's very, very hard to tell people, no, we don't do this anymore. It's against the law. 
it's almost impossible. So what do you do? You adapt the law as best you can to reflect the practice. So at least everybody feels that they're compliant with the law. What they, the Stosavot did that's, that's novel, everybody has the notion of Davka and Lav Davka, but you determine whether it is Davka or not based on the context of the Imra. Tosafot decided to drop that and they could declare something davka or love davka as they needed to, not according to the internal organic uh, text. So here's an example. According to Talmudic law, it's prohibited to draw water on Shabbat by means of a wheel, yani a water wheel, right? You turn the water wheel and you still see these in the, uh, here in New England, in the United States, especially in Massachusetts, there's mills and the mills are run by a water wheel, but you could use the wheel. They also use the same wheels to irrigate or to give you water. You can't do that on the ground. It's a gazira on the grounds that a person might also draw water for their garden or your ruin. I guess they had like buildings that were in total disrepair called horba, but they needed to keep them wet or fertile for whatever reason. So penan, this is a that's a simple Talmudic thing in Eidobin 104a. You cannot draw water from a water wheel. Now, Tosafot made the following analysis. Rabbeinotam explained that to be that law to be davka with a large wheel, although it doesn't say large wheel, it just says bagalgal. That just means any water wheel, any water wheel that you have. Uh, he says, no, that means large wheels that draw large quantities of water at one time. Then there is room to forbid. However, ours are small and we do not forbid it. Uh, I'll skip this next one because it's not that interesting. Second, when do you recite the evening Shema? So um, you may be aware, and I'm sure you've heard. So when does Shabbat end? Uh, nobody seems to know. So some people say the Geonim and the Sugya in uh, Masechet Shabbat chapter two are very, very clear. Three quarters of a meal after sunset. A meal is a fixed time interval in rabbinic jurisprudence. It doesn't vary with latitude, does not vary with season, it's fixed. So three a meal is 24 minutes. So three quarters of a meal is 18 minutes. So Shabbat and Yom Tov and Kippur and Ta'anit and the day, if you're a Zab or a Zaba or if you have a baby and you want to know when the Mila is, the day ends 18 minutes after sunset. Every single day, every single place, all across the globe. But you may have heard this uh, Rabbeinu Tam's position is, no, it ends 72 minutes. I think he means astronomical minutes, after sunset. So Jewish law requires that one recite the Shema of the evening after the appearance of the stars. That's Seta Kocharim. That's the first Sugyan Derachot. This requirement was inconvenient to many who wished to retire early. It was particularly difficult if one followed the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam that the Seta Kocharim is actually 72 Sha'od Zemaniot after sunset, which does vary with latitude and does vary with season. So if you're in Oslo, Norway, you can't recite the Kiryat Shema Shel Arvin until God knows what, a couple hour and a half after sunset. Very difficult. What do you do? However, Rabbeinu Tam allows the discharge of this obligation 72 astronomical minutes before sunset. And how did he get that idea? He connected the laws of Kiryat Shema 
to the law of Shil Arvin, to the laws of um, of uh, Arvit. Now, the rule about Arvit is as follows. While Minha and Shahrit are fixed because they're Kenegid Timidim, they are parallel in the time, in time, time of day, to the Korban Tamid Shal Shahar and Korban Tamid Shal Ben Ha'arbaim, right? Like in Perashat Sav, the Korbani Lahmi Leishai Reach Mihohitish Miru Leakribi Ben Moado, Kevesehad Ben Ben, what is it? Kevesehad Ben Chenato Baboker, Ben Kevesehad Sheni Ben Ha'arbaim. There were two sheep that were sacrificed as an Ola each and every day. Shahrid is Keneged Tamid Shal Shahrid. And Minhaz, Keneged Tamid Shal Ben Ha'arbaim. What about Arbit? Arbit is a national Minhaz. It was accepted by everybody, so it's binding, but it's a minhag, and it has no specific time because there's no korbanot after sunset. So you could pray the Mishnah in Berachot says Tefillat Ha'ereb in Laha Keba. It has no fixed time, so therefore its time is fluid. So yes, you could pray Arbit before sunset, but the Mishnah in Berachot is clear: you cannot recite Shema. Until sunset, there's no mahloket. That's the law of Kiryat Shema Shel Arvin. The Sugel later tells you that that means it's the business of the Kohanim um, coming back home to eat Kirumah. That's Seta Kohanim. But it's not before, and it's certainly not 72 minutes before sunset. So, how did he do it? Uh, this is the quote. It's uh, I won't, I won't read it. I'll just tell you that he applied to the evening Shema, the law of the evening Amida. Uh, that's right. And where is that? That is in uh, somewhere in the first chapter of Berachot. I'm sorry. I thought I put the site, but I didn't. I don't remember where it was. But if you want, I'll, I can supply it later. What about a Ta'arobet Hames on Pesach? According to the Mishnah in Pesachim chapter 3, one must remove even mixtures of hames from your property before Passover. Bal and Bal applies to ta'arovet hames. But I have to tell you, there's a distinction. There's two types of ta'arovet. Um, and there's a rabbinic uh, legal maxim called kazai toch achilat pares. Are you all familiar with that? You know what that means? I hope. So it's a measure of ratios. A kazait is the volume of an of an olive. Toch achilat pares, mixed in with, or you eat it with, a bread, piece of bread that's one half of a, a standard pita bread, let's say. It's, it's uh, one to three or one to four, depending on how many kazait zait, zaitim you think go into that, but it's, it's it's one, to, one out of three or one out of four. So if it's if the amount of hames in this mixture is less than kazai toch achilat pares, let's say 25%, it's less, then you, you're not allowed to keep it, but only drabana. So if you ate that, you don't get makot. But if the ratio of the ta'arobit, the mixture of hames, is more than kazai toch achilat pares, or equal to kazai toch achilat pares, then 
you get makot for eating it. And of course, it's forbidden to own any kind of pa'arobe. But uh, this injunction would have imposed a heavy economic burden on Jewish society in France at the time. So what did Rabbeinu Tam do? He explains the Mishnah as follows. The Elu Obarin, when it says Elu Obarin Bapesach, and it lists several mixtures of Hames. Not one of them is pure Hames. It's the Shekhar uh, Hamadi and um, all kind of Kutah uh, Babli. These are all, you know, um, from different cultures, foods which were commonly consumed, which have a mixture, we have some Hames in them, but they're not totally Hames. He says the Elu Obarin Perush Haochlin. Ha'ochalin, the foods, foodstuffs. Ve'obrin hayin or hayno. And when it says obrin, so the word la'avor means two things. It means to pass over, like to take away from or remove from. It also means to violate a, a law, so like an abera. So ve'elu obarin ba'pesah and mishnah meant the abera sense. It's a violation if you eat these mixtures. But the Tosafot exploited the dual semantic nature of this root and said when it says to move them it means to move them from on the table that you don't eat them during Pesach but, but it's, there's no isur, there's no violation of a misvah if you keep them so in the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam these must be removed at Passover refers to food it means only from the table because one may not eat them. However, there is no transgression if you keep them on your property of the injunction uh, I think I'll finish with this one. Good, okay. Cheese of Gentiles. So uh, this, what we've been studying the last few slides where you take something out of context as necessary to conform the law text to the people's practice, raises a far principle. Oh, what is it? Let's see. Okay, right. It, it raises a principle of far-reaching ramifications in the application of rabbinic law, and that is whether in a gezera, if if you think you know the original reason, and you're also certain that that original reason no longer applies, can the gezera not apply? So that's called batlah ta'am, batlah gezera. And the Ashkenazi legal sources, often that is taken seriously. And so they are, are willing to undo Gezerot or, or remove them, virtually repeal them, if they feel they know the original reason and that reason no longer applies. In the Sephardic tradition, we don't do that. For various reasons, one of which is you never know the full story when the Hachamim disclose a reason. You don't know if that's the real full motivation or a kind of a packaging of the Gezera so it made sense to the people because they're asking these very same people to accept this new prohibition. Uh, so here's a bunch of sites if you're interested where Tosafot say explicitly A few illustrations will suffice to show how this principle was applied. So under a rabbinic law, it means there's a Gezera, you cannot eat cheese made by Goyim. Even if it's 100% kasher, the ingredients have no problem whatsoever. It's still forbidden because of a gezera. To this effect, commented Rabbeinu Tam, and I'll, we'll just read the English. This is the Hebrew. 
Rabbeinu Tam said that nowadays there is no simple reason to forbid cheese manufactured by Gentiles, since the reason that it was forbidden is because of the possibility of having it been galui, mean out in the open and uh, a nahash, a serpent, or you know house snakes could have got in it and put poison in it, which would have been a sekana. He's attributing the reason for the gezerah on eating, on not eating cheese made by Gentiles to a kind of a sekana, like. The, the other gizirot we know about, about leaving, drinking water that's been uncovered all night because we're afraid that some insect or a serp, a nahash may have hitilba zohama, um, dropped it or squirted in its poison into the, the drink or the food stuff. And that's a common thing. So he ported that idea over to the gizirot of cheeses. However, before I read this, this is the, uh, just to give you context, this is what Harambam says about uh, this Gezerah. I'll tell you the real reason. The real reason for the Gezerah is, if you, so you have to set cheese. How do you set cheese? It's, it's called rennet, but it's also called chymosin. And nowadays it's made by bacteria. They, they have farms of E. coli bacteria who generate chymosin. What is chymosin? It's an enzyme that allows the separation of the curds from the whey. So you take raw milk, you put it in a big pot or big, you know, like a huge pot, like in a distillery, right? And they introduce this rennet and they, they wait. And the rennet causes the fat globules to separate and coalesce. They, they coalesce together. And the fat is extracted in one big fat glob and the, remaining water is called whey and it can easily be removed. Then you take the fat globules, the curds, and you set them into you know, certain shapes and you put them in a press and you let it sit and the remaining moisture is drips out kind of like a wine press and that's the cheese. And then you let the, seed, the cheese age for however long according to the whatever style of cheese it is. How do you, in the old days, how did they set cheeses? Two ways, one way. You extract the chymosin from the stomach lining of, uh, of nursing calves. It was hard to get somewhat because it only exists in, uh, in animals when they have to drink mother's milk because that helps them digest it. When you no longer eat mother's milk, you no longer produce the chymosin. So to get chymosin, you have to go to the, kill a, a, a young calf or a sheep, go into its stomach and extract the chymosin. That's called keva. It's easier just to take the entire stomach of the calf or the goat or the sheep, fill it with water, close the top where the uh, duodenum would be, and, and let it hang. So you see in old Italian restaurants or old Italian shops, you'll see hanging like um, stomachs. That is how they used to set cheese and they still like that. So they, the old fashioned ways to do that. So that is called setting with or hakeva, the skin of the animal that has keva. Now, because it's a nevela, uh, that skin becomes a tarobit, a mixture with the milk. And that mixture is forbidden. Even though it's a small, small amount, there's a, a legal principle that ma'amid is never batel. So even if you use a very small amount of a substance that's forbidden to set, to set uh, another food like milk into cheese or 
cabbage into kimchi or anything like that. Gelatins is a setting agent in, in, in jello. Even though it's a tiny, tiny amount, it renders the whole mixture forbidden. That's the basis of the Gezira, because we couldn't distinguish whether, whether this goy actually set the cheese in a stomach or he set the cheese with extracted chymosin like the Jews did it, which adds steps, okay? So now, that's why all cheese of goyim is forbidden because it's impossible to distinguish. Now, here's what Harambam says. And here's another question. What about if you're certain that they used a vegetable rennet? Like there's certain Greek cheeses which were made with the sap of figs. And there's certain the Tosafot over here, also if you keep reading it, this is Abu Azara 35a, explains to you that's in, in Narbonne, which is in France, Narbona, right? You've heard of Moshem in Narbona, one of the famous Tosafists. They allowed cheeses made by the Goim, which were set with, he calls perahim, flowers. But he means a certain secretion in, in the flowers, a floral secretion, not unlike the Greek cheeses made of figs uh, sap. They permitted that. Here's what the Mishneh Torah says, probably addressing them and those like them. What about cheese that the goyim set with herbs? Or with secretions or the juice of fruits, like the sap of figs. And moreover, it's immediately discernible from the cheese itself even though you didn't see the process of setting the milk in that cheese, because they would leave a, a leaf of the plant on it, or they would draw a little index on the plant, on the top of the cheese, so you knew this was fig cheese, let's say. Some geonim, this is not a, there's no Talmudic law on it. No suga ever dealt with it. Pure case of first instance. Some of the geonim said it's forbidden because the tenor of the Gezerah, the language of the Gezerah does not allow for any variation or exception. That's the way they wanted to make it. Because many of those cheeses are set with forbidden elements, forbidden rennets, they made them all forbidden. And so this is a legal analysis of the language of the Gezira, like what we would say today in our courts, construing a contract or a statute. Once you have the statute, you're stuck with it. It's binding. The only question is, what does it mean? The Tosafot approach is more, let's go into the legislative history of this statute. And if we can tell that the basis or motive as we identify it no longer applies, then the statute is no longer binding. That's a different kind of analysis, usually made by a court. Any court can do that. What's interesting about the Ba'aliyat Tosafot is they took on themselves the freedom to interpret that only a Beddin HaGadol has. And that's why uh, in Southern Spain and North Africa and Egypt and Babel and Iraq and, and Syria, they didn't accept those rulings because it's what we call ultra-virus. It's a nice theory and it could be true, but you need authority, you need legal, uh, binding legal authority to make those interpretations. Like you could take the greatest legal minds in the world. If they're not in a Supreme Court, they can't change the law. So I know I went a bit over, sorry about that. Uh, here, if you have any questions, 
I propose the following. This is a admittedly much more complex than one hour treatment, even though I started late, it still was like 70 some minutes. If anyone has questions in the coming days when you think about this, and you can collect them and send them to me, I'm happy to hold a follow-up if you want to. Nope, not binding. But if you want to, I'll go through the questions, develop answers and can present those and we can have more uh, give and take where you all speak. If you wanna do that, that's fine. Otherwise, if, if you wanna have any questions now, also fine, I'm game, but I know it's late. Afam, thank you so, so much. Just to get a taste of how incredible this year has been is the fact that we started with essentially 50 people an hour and a half later we've still got 50 people in the room uh so that says a lot um thank you for that uh, anybody got any questions i'm sure they do there were a couple in the chat um if you want to stop sharing just so we can see everybody okay uh, if you yeah. cancel share uh then it'll be easier because everyone can see each other while questions are being asked there was a question above by jack jack hodari do you want to unmute and ask your question that you asked at the beginning Jack, if um, was this the question about um, Carlos, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, so I was just asking that if the Kalats were essentially imitating Hakel or imitating what they would have done in the Beth HaMikdash, so how is it that Chachamim had... How, is it, how did they have the authority? How did whoever instituted the Kalats have the authority to create something that was a quasi-mitzvah that is modeled off a mitzvah, but it's very different from the original mitzvah. So you didn't have to go, but it's an opportunity for national Talmud Torah. So you get to, just like at the temple, people who may have been distantly related or, or acquainted, maybe through business, maybe through otherwise, someone had moved from one land to the other, you got to renew friendships. That's, what, that's a lot of what happened at the Shalosh uh, Regalim. They wanted something similar, but it was under the guise of let's study Torah. And in the days of, uh, because the, the activities of the yeshiva were only known to people who attended, but you had to gain admission. It was like, it was like being in Oxford. Not everybody could get in. It was much desired to get in, but you had to pass a test and you had to be recommended. It wasn't so easy. So they wanted to uh, let the community in general understand what goes on at the yeshivot and what new laws or new hadushim that maybe had developed that they wanted to share with everybody that would be inspiring, be edifying. So they developed this thing called the kalot. It only worked in a Jewish society. So in Babel, the economy was all Jewish. You didn't really trade with goyim so much, a little bit, but it was like importing or exporting to a foreign country. Most of the buying and selling was from Jew to Jew. So if everybody wants to take off in this twice a year, they can. And if everybody does, it doesn't change anything. It's not like we're, we're a small, small minority. The Jewish settlement in Babel kind of had its own microcosm society. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Uh, anybody else would like to unmute and go ahead and ask? The Rav mentioned that uh, the Sabarayim were kind of the final editors of the Talmud. Are, are their contributions recorded in the, uh, the Stama, the anonymous voice that kind of yeah, good question. So um, Weiss Halivni says yes. I say no. And Haham Pa'ur, my teacher, as you know, also says no. The Sitam voice is most often the um, consensus at the Kalla. And I have many sugyot that show that. 
there's a set of terms uh, which are identify as Seboritic comment, uh, like mikede. Some people say mikdi. Uh, we say that mikede, or my ta'ama almost always is Seboritic. You don't say that to an emora, you just ask him directly in the Emoritic yeshiva. So where are those recorded? Very good question. Right now, they have been interpolated almost completely into the text of the Talmud. So you will have Seboritic notes, which may or may not be consistent with the uh, suga itself, interpolated. And Haramban changed some rulings. So when he went back to the East, he became very, very wealthy. And he was able to buy a, a manuscript of the Talmud from the year 600 some. So it, it uh, had the original Amoritic text and the Seboritic comments only in the margin. And there, he was thereby able to extract the Seboritic comments that he thought were part of the Sugya from the Sugya, and he ruled just like the Sugya, and he changed some rulings. So Haham Fa'ur wrote an article about that, something in Masechet Nidda, where he uh, discovered a certain statement in the Talmud was actually of Seboritic origin, and based on that, he changed the law. So the short answer is, it's in the Talmud now. Do you, if you want to see the Talmud without that, with like a red line of those uh, subordinate comments, that's, that's a PhD or, or more. Thank you. Is uh, that an article from Hacham Faor available somewhere? Yes, I'm sure it is. Uh, Do you know the title of it? I can search for it and get it in the group. I can get it. Or Joey... Joey and Elliot Levy would know who are collecting all the articles. Okay. Sienna, I can send it to you in a yes, please, Elliot. Just give me a few minutes and Thank you'll you. share it. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Elliot Levy's like Amazon Prime when Seriously. it comes to articles. It shows up on your doorstep. Though I'm from Seattle. You don't know this, but in Seattle, you order something at Amazon on 11 a.m., it's there at 12.30 p.m. on your door. Very on top of it. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Shalom Rabbi, 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 oh, sorry, Ravi Sfak, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so when the Rambam in Mahalotasurot, he writes, the guy by the Gizirat Givinat he says only in Miksat Geonim. So does the Rambam hold of that? Or what's he coming to do when he brings two shitot like that? The song so, and then the Miksat. Yeah, very good question. My opinion is he does in this case. So it's the way he phrases it because he defends the, that hora'ah. I think he means that to be his opinion. But he's honest and he tells you, look, I, this Mishneh Torah, we only restate the law that is binding on all of Israel, which is the law of the Tamud Babli, supplemented by some other texts, as he explains in the Hakdama. So he's not going to tell you that it's binding. He's going to tell you and then he's going to defend their position, but ultimately it's it's a matter of choice. Thank you. Thank you. Michal, I saw you are muting. Sina, I just sent it to you if you want to share it with anyone on WhatsApp. Thank you, Thank you very much. I'm going to share that now. Michal, you're still muted. Um, all the information that the Haham mentioned regarding the Kala. Um, where, where's all this information available? Where's it recorded? Regarding the, sorry, the what? The, the Kala. Oh, oh. 
the best source I know is Haham Faour's Horizontal Society, the formation, the Kalot and the formation of the Talmud Babu. Um, so in his footnotes, as always, that's where the gems are. If you, if you read what he says and you wanna know where he got this from, he trace it, you can trace it through in the footnotes. Various statements, much of it in the Igeret Ribi Shirira Gaon, some of it in the Haktama of the Mishneh Torah. But when Harambam speaks in the Haktama of Alafim Urbabot and the Rashe Galuyot were there, that's referring to the Kalot. The authority of the Kala, well, the authority of the Dayanim in general in Babel was because it was granted by the Resh Galuta who stood in the shoes of a monarch. Thank, Thank you. you. And there's actually, the article. Yeah, there's the article Kindly sent me. Uh, regarding the Kala, I actually was reading a book on the uh, Geonim and the approach and the, what the Yeshivot were like. And uh, I mentioned earlier to the Hacham, it's essentially what Hacham Fawr had said. It described it exactly like that. It was beautiful to read. Uh, any other questions? Please do unmute. Uh, we've got a question in the group. In the group chat, if you see, who were the Gaonim of Sarfat that Rabbeinu mentions in the Haktama? I don't know if he knows. So he, I think there he's uh, restating what he found in the Sefer Kabbalah Abraham ibn Daud, that there were Gaonim in France. I think he's just taking uh, ibn Daud's word for it. I don't think he ever, he ever never went to France, so I don't think he would know anybody personally. Don't forget, he left Spain when he was maybe 15. Uh, if I can have a quick question. Uh, we've taken enough of your time. Um, we, we sometimes use the term, we say geonim, as though it was some monolithic entity. But it does seem to be that there were different geonim with different approaches. Um, is that the case? And what were the differences in your mind? And, and how fundamental were those differences? So, um... Geonim refers to an epoch in time, really, from after the Seboraim until the Rabbanim established themselves basically in Spain. And that's how Abraham ibn Daoud styles it. The Geonim in Babel, they believed only they could be Geonim. What does that mean? They said, we're in the same building as the Amoraim. We're in the same place. We have the same archives. We have the same access to centuries of Shemuot, which were written, no question. So when we speak in the name of the Talmud or we give an, an interpretation, it's equivalent to that of the Emoraim. The school of Yosef Ibn Megas, who was Harambam's father's teacher, are the first people to challenge that head on. And they said, no, based on demographics alone, the reason the Emoraim could be a Beddin Shal Rabbim is because 80% of the Jewish people lived in their jurisdiction at the time. That's no longer the case. That changed radically with the Muslim conquest. And now we're much more spread out. Harama more or less says this in the Hakdama. There was Pizur Yater, there was a great or an additional uh, scattering. And because of that, although you are in the same building and you have the same tradition and you have the archives that they had, you don't have the demographics to make you a Bedin Shal Rabbim. So what you say is not binding on anybody except your own locale. They didn't they wouldn't agree with that. Uh, and, and this narrative is described in some detail in Haham uh, Faur's first book, Aryonim de Mishneh Torah Leharambam. And so from 
in, in one of his, Haramam had a bit of an argument with someone named Shimuel ben Ali, who was the then Gaon in Baghdad, who called himself a Gaon, just like they had for centuries. That kind of Gaon Harambam didn't really appreciate. And single-handedly, Harambam destroyed destroy the institution of, of the Gaonate. That's the truth. Um, so in one of his comments to the Shimuel bin Ali, he says, well, there are other Gaonim disagree unless you think that Makom is Gorem and that to be a, that the place where you are is determinative. In other words, you can only be a Gaon if you're in Baghdad. And that was a, a subtle um, casting shade on Shimuel bin Ali. So for Hanambam, anybody who masters the Talmud, uh, post-Talmud, is a Gaon. And it's up to, the, I guess, the people or the colleagues to know whether someone has mastered or not, and according to what criteria, obviously, also. I think for Harambam, if you, you can't master the Talmud Babli unless you know Dinimu Flaim, like that one of those early slides I put up, which means you'd have to be able lehosi reshit davar me'aharito and to trace the form of a misvah or the implementation of a misvah through the time axis of the Moshe Rabbeinu, first temple, break between the temples, second temple, post temple, etc. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rob. Um, I don't want to take any more of your time. Uh, if we just do one final question, if anyone's got to unmute and then we'll let the Rav go. Um, I, I just, how are you? I just wanted to ask about the, uh, the Kalot. Yes. Um, first of all, I, you may have mentioned it earlier and I didn't catch it, but were they going on throughout uh, the entire MRI period or most of the period or was it an in innovation of Rabbi I think in some form they were going on. I think they were more regular during the time of Rabbi Ashe because he wanted to do something concrete with them. But there definitely were Kalot going on. Uh, their statements, I think of Rava, not sure. <clears throat> Why don't the Goyim convert when they see the multitudes coming to the Kalot in, in Mahoza or Pumbedita? They should be so impressed that they would just be full of desire to be Jewish. He doesn't, like, that's his point. He doesn't understand why they aren't. What don't they notice? So I, I think there definitely were. Uh, you know, nationwide gatherings. I don't think they were as regular or as well staffed and presented as the 60 Kalot of Rabbi Hashem. Thank you. Thank you very Rob, much. I think um, one way to put it, the Tosafot were innovative. And I think, in my opinion, modern orthodoxy is kind of the exact opposite. Um, so how, how and when did that change of going from being so innovative to being willing to edit text to being, you know, so locked into a certain way of ah, thinking? Um, good, good question. Excellent question. So I think two, two events that people responded to. One, Shabbatai Sevi problem, because he took uh, Kabbalah Ta'ari and made antinomian practices out of it. And then the reform movement really jostled uh, people in Hungary. I mean, they, so Hungary and, and 
where the reform were, were in close social contact with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, and uh, Austria was part of that. And then Germany was close and everybody interacted with Germany. Uh, that really jostled them and they went to the other extreme. They said, if the reform are gonna try and change anything that we're gonna be against all change. And I think from then on, we get the kind of Haredi, uh, what you might call a maximalist position. Everything we do today was done by Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai, kind of idea. So my opinion is, what do we do? So the Tosafot are very innovative. Uh, and then in recent history, we've had a, this super conservative, not change one iota kind of approach. Uh, so I think for us, we don't need to conform the Talmud to our practice anymore because you have so many freedoms today. Like your profession, the way you could do business, what kind of property you could own was all very determined and out of your control in the Carolingian Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, even because you were Jewish and they, they pushed Christianity so much that further limitations. Nowadays, you can get on Amazon and sell anything to anybody. You can source your goods in China and sell them in Australia. And you could be sitting here in Ohio and at your computer all day. You could work uh, on any side of the clock you want to. So when you say the Shema is of no moment whatsoever, you, if you want to eat late, you just put something in the fridge. <laughs> you can go get it at 2 a.m. So unlike those medieval societies where you had to eat at a certain time and go to sleep at a certain time, and if it was the Northern Europe and it was in the summer, there's no way to recite the Shema on time. We don't have any of that problem. We even have alarms. You could set seven alarms on your iPhone and, and do seven things and it'll talk to you. You could tell Siri, wake me up at 10.30 p.m. and tell me to read the Shema and Siri will tell you. So I don't think we need to do this kind of conformity at the same time, we don't have to drop all innovation on any issue where there's no Talmudic rule. If there's no, if there's no law, it's a new uh, situation. Like, could you ride a, a bicycle on Shabbat? There is no Gezera against it. And I don't think it's Hosa'a. So you could be free to not worry about that. If you really see it as Mutar, so it's be, go ahead, say. Not, not a problem, right? And, and other things like that. I'm not going to get into it, but the whole issue of electricity, electronics, and devices which use in whole or in part electricity, electronics. How does that play into halacha? It's not fire. Of course, it's not. You can't go to a university and get a degree in physics or engineering and then come out and say, oh, yes, the rabbi told me that electricity is fire. Your, your mind will be split in two. You can't you can't live with yourself. So how, how do you, on Shabbat, you, you think like you're in the Middle Ages and every other day you're designing the propulsion system for an, an F-40 airplane? It, it doesn't work. So we don't have to be afraid of innovation where innovation is allowed and we don't have to change the law. So let's say you can't do something. I would say today, you don't need to do what the Tosafot did. Suppose you can't do X, I just can't do it. Like there's a Gezera, I've discussed with Sina before. There is a Gezera on the books against listening to live music, absolutely. I can't do it, personally, I can't do it. I, I, I wouldn't be able to, especially when I was younger, you know, you have dates and you go to concerts and, and when it gets serious dating, you don't have to go to the, a huge concert in Candlestick Park, but you do have to go to a, a bar with nice music and drinks, you know. You can't just do a 
kosher from date every time, certainly not in the Sephardic world, it doesn't work. So if I can't do the comply with the Gezerah, I just simply say, I cannot comply with that Gezerah. Yes, it's a Gezerah. Yes, it's a law. And I'm not doing it. Better than twisting the law to show how it's really permitted. You know, I don't think we need to do that either. Very well put. Thank you so, so much, Rob. The messages are pouring in on WhatsApp and privately to me on the Zoom saying uh, how fantastic this has been. Uh, we are very excited to have you for membership mode. I know we haven't locked in the dates ex uh, you know, specifically, but I believe it's in the second half of the year. Uh, we have got you for a six-part series on the fundamentals of rabbinic jurisprudence. Yes. Uh, Chazal, Philo, and Ben Amozet. So very, very, very excited. I think before then, we need to find a way of having you back because we are all much more enlightened than we were at the beginning. So thank you, Rav. Thank you for taking this time out on a Sunday. Um, and this is just the beginning. My, my pleasure. Oh, by the way, uh, on that six-part class, so you will hear the full sugya recited and the Mishnayot several times. So the, you get the full treatment. In fact, if I have, have time, I will record it in advance. That, that's the way actually it was done. So when I studied with Fa'ur, he wanted us to memorize the sugya before the class. Now, he got used to Americans who can't have the same focus that he had himself as a youth and, and initially expected when he was very young and he taught in Brooklyn, he would say, did you review the, did you review the sugya? And everybody would say, yes, yes, yes. He's okay, repeat it. And then they couldn't repeat it. And he would get very upset. And, but he, he got used to Americans. But that's the way, that's the best way to do it. You know? Yeah. Now we look forward to the materials before and I'll make sure that the Talmudim and Talmudot are prepped okay. in advance of those classes. Um, thank you again, huge thank you. Thank you everyone for being here. Um, we continue our series, I think on Wednesday, a new uh, Shi'ur with uh, Senior Rabbi Eli Abadi, who's the Av Din of Arabia, the new Senior Rabbi of the United Arab Emirates, then Rabbi Dweck's back next week. Um, and I believe that's it. That's it for pre-membership mode. So everybody needs to, if you're listening on YouTube, uh, where we have hundreds of people watching afterwards, please make sure you subscribe um, to the membership program beginning in July. Um, beyond that, I just want to say thank you all. And again, thank you to the Rav. I can't wait to review this. Um, so have a fantastic day, wherever you are in the world. All the students have a fantastic, fantastic day. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.